As Beck said, as we started the service, uh, very few of you will know this, and uh, very few will care. Uh, uh, but today is, is known, and has not been known for decades, maybe centuries, in Anglican circles as stir-up Sundays. It's a sort of nerdy Anglican thing, for those who care. Uh, why, I hear you ask. Um, brilliant question, thank you for asking. And the answer is because uh, there's a collect, a set prayer from the 1662 Book of Common Prayer that goes like this, stir up, listen to this, it's written on the front page, stir up, we beseech thee, O Lord, the wills of thy faithful people. It's a set prayer for the Sunday before Advent, which is next week, which leads us into Christmas. I'm going to talk more about that in a few moments' time. But listen to the prayer, stir up the wills of thy faithful people, stir up our wills, disturb them, push them around, lift them off their foundations, try something new in me, God, my will, do something there in that space. And for what purpose? In the prayer, it's that they, thy faithful people, that they plenteously bringing forth the fruit of good works may of thee uh, be plenteously rewarded through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a prayer that says, wake me up, God. Get at me, get in me, get through to me. Stir up in me a passion for you. Uh, stir up the fruit of good works. Embedded in the, in the ancient prayer, it's a 400-year-old prayer, is that the one who stirred this up in me, stirred up my will, the one who did the, the bearing of the fruit in the first place will also reward me, which I think is Jesus' way of saying, I notice you. I'm not sure if it's a reward for good works. It's a it's noticing what goes on, embedded in the prayers that God will notice what is done in secret, as Jesus himself said. He notices what may be small to others. He notices what is done in my heart. Stir up, O Lord, the wills of thy faithful people. So I want to open up some teaching of Jesus uh, to stir us up. I can't guarantee that. Um, in fact, I'm going to tell you in a moment why some of you will not be stirred up. Uh, I'll come to that in a moment, and then I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to introduce a whole bunch of uh, good news uh, for 2020 and beyond. Four things to say from, uh, from Matthew 13 on page 8 of your, your zine. Um, what would stir us up? And here are four things if you're writing notes, both of you. Four things. Number one, there's hidden news to stir you up. There's valuable news, supremely valuable news. There's sobering news, not all good news. And lastly, there's new news because not all news is new. It's fresh news. Hidden news, valuable news, sobering news, and new news. I'll start with hidden news first, if you don't mind. In Matthew 13, verse 51, look at it with me, page 8. Jesus asks a question, a penetrating question. He says, have you understood all these things. You only ask that question when there's a possibility of being misunderstood. Do you get it? Did you notice at the end of our Old Testament reading in Isaiah 43, see, I'm doing a new thing, uh, said, said uh, God through Isaiah the prophet. Now it springs up. Do you perceive it? Can you see it? Do you understand it? In another passage in the Gospels, Jesus says, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but there are people on the outside that will never understand. 
Now, why do I say this? Because there are some people, and maybe in this church this afternoon, who will never get it. You just won't perceive it. You won't understand it. You walk out of here going, I didn't like the songs or something else like that. Uh, the Israel Falau thing uh, was strange this week, and I don't really want to talk about what he said. I want to talk about Anthony Albanese. But I have to say something about what he said, if you don't mind. He made the link between bushfires, a direct link between bushfires and the punishment of God. The state goes up in flames and he makes a comment in church. Uh, the only reason we listen is because of his previous comments. Otherwise, uh, we probably wouldn't even know what he said. I just want to say in response to that, if you don't mind, a pastoral response. I don't believe the scriptures, the New Testament in particular, allows you to make a specific connection between one sin and one punish, one's punishment, unless you can see the connection. I was drunk, I fell over him. But uh, I don't think what Israel did this week, if it's indeed it's what he did, and I've been told to go and look at the video before passing judgment, and I think that's probably fair to say, and I'm not here to pass judgment. I do want to say that if he was making a specific link between uh, a nation's sin and, and, uh, and a particular punishment, then I don't believe it's right to do so. John 9 tells you that's, you can't do that. Luke 13 tells you, you can't do that. You've still got to repent, but you can't do the specific linking. Uh, James chapter 5 says there might be, but you can't be sure about it. And certainly the uh, book of Job uh, suggests that uh, the friends really make that connection and they're unwise to do so. It is fair to say, though, that the Bible does say in a general sense that when people suffer or in pain, that ought to prompt within us a desire to repent, a point made by Jesus in Luke chapter 13. Now, leaving all that aside, I just think that's important to say, leaving all that aside, I was interested in Anthony Albanese's response on Sky News, the opposition leader. He said this, he said, Australians don't like to think this way. He said, Australians like to think of God in positive terms. And I quote, they think of a loving God. They don't think of religion or faith in those negative terms. Now, it's a politician speaking about God. I get it. It's not his area, etc. But it was an interesting comment that I think reflects an Australian value, namely that you get to determine what is true or not true about God on the basis of your preconceived ideas. If it isn't positive, says Albanese, it can't be true. But God isn't determined by our preconceived ideas. If you think God is fashioned in your image, if he only thinks your thoughts after you, then you'll never perceive or understand God. You'll never understand the kingdom of God, because you're fashioning him in your image. This happened in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, many thought of the kingdom of God in military terms, and they wouldn't hear it any other way. They would have loved Jesus to say the kingdom of God is like a king who defeats the Romans. Jesus said, no, I'm putting my sword down. He wouldn't um, just give in to that preconceived idea. Another group in Jesus' day said that the kingdom of God, they thought of the kingdom of God in terms of Torah-keeping, kingdom of God is like a prophet who goes and wakes people up and gets them to be kosher. And Jesus said, no, it's much more than that. It's an inner, an inner salvation he's giving, not just a waking you up to be a sort of better person. But those people came to Jesus with their agenda, like Anthony Albanese, and they didn't get it. They just simply didn't perceive it. One of the beautiful things about Jesus is that he confounds people all the time. He's doing something bigger than your personal perceptions. 
something to do with his death and resurrection in Isaiah 43, written 600 years before Jesus. God says to the prophet Isaiah, forget the former things, don't dwell on the past, see I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you perceive it? Do you understand it? Do you see it? Same thing that Jesus says in verse 51 of Matthew 13. I say to God, stir up, Lord, the wills of thy faithful people. Dislodge me from my preconceptions. Second thing to say is it's valuable news. Look at verse 44 to verse 46. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, is like a treasure hidden in a field. It's hidden, you see. Yes, not everyone understands. Not even those who own the field didn't realize what they had in their field. But nonetheless, it's treasure. The treasure is so good, so valuable, that when the man found the treasure, he hid it again. And then in his joy, stir up, O Lord, in his joy, he went and sold all he had, everything, and bought that field. In other words, there was nothing that he had left after selling everything that was valuable enough for him to keep. Not a single thing. To get that treasure, he wanted it so badly, the man was willing to sacrifice all he had to, to gain the kingdom of God. I'm thinking about Jesus giving up all he has when he says, when he goes to the cross. Such is the kingdom of God. The second story there is about a pearl of great price. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Two stories that are very similar. Both the treasure and the pearl are valuable, so valuable you'd sell everything to get them. There's a subtle difference, by the way. Did you notice? There's a subtle difference between the two stories. Verse 40 is in the verbs. A couple of English teachers in the room just sat up. Dylan, did you get it? The kingdom of heaven in the first story is like a treasure hidden. In verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking. One focuses on the treasure, which is hidden. The second focuses on the person, the merchant, searching, looking, needing, thirsting, having to find. The gospel then is the most valuable thing you could have. I get that from the first story. But it's also worth looking for, worth wanting, seeking, needing, stir up. O Lord, the wills of thy faithful people. And in Revelation, it says the book is only for those who are thirsty, not just the curious. You've got to be thirsty. Now, we know what the news is. Um, the news is that a person can be right with God. <gasps> you know, a sinner like me. It's nuts. A holy God. You know, I deserve hell. I get heaven. I deserve judgment, I get grace. And therefore I can know God, the true God, as He is, but I can know Him ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. We sing songs like this all the time. It's why we sing. And we can do that through Jesus Christ. John said, no one has ever seen God. He says that, and I believe that's in part why this, it's hard to go through life without see, see, hear, taste, touch, and smell, don't you? you feel that regularly? 
We want to have a sense of God, see, hear, taste, touch, and smell. And God gives that to people from time to time. But John says, no one's ever seen God, but there's one who's made him known, the one and only Son, who is himself God, uh, with, who's with the Father, has made him known. We've seen his glory, uh, say the apostles. All of this secured by his life, the life I should have lived, his death, he died the death I deserved, and his resurrection, he gives me new life. That's why the Son of Man must die, despite all those people that had preconceived ideas. And he must rise again so that I might rise with him to enjoy the eternal life that I received when I came to him, but to enjoy it into eternity. But the gospel, the pearl of great price, not just something personal either. The resurrection is just the beginning of his restoration of a broken world, not just broken hearts. God made the world. He loves the world. He wants it back. He wants you back. Some will get it. Some won't. Thirdly, this is sobering news. In the third story in, in uh, verse 47, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like, not a treasure hidden, not a merchant looking, but a net that was let down into a lake and caught all kinds of fish. I presume the net stays there for a season. When it was full at the right time, the fishermen pulled it up in a decisive moment onto the shore. Then they sat and do what fisher people do. They collect the good fish into baskets in order to eat and they, or sell, and they throw the bad ones away. Jesus says of the end time, this is how it will be at the end of the age, at the eschaton. The angels, Jesus says, and I believe in angels, the angels come and separate a set called the wicked and a set called the righteous and the set called the wicked are thrown into what Jesus called the, the blazing furnace where Jesus said there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now that's sobering news. So I think part of the reason why the gospel is so valuable is what it says to anybody who's genuinely concerned, and I am, about this sobering news. By the way, I wonder what Anthony Albanese would say about those words. Jesus is saying, unequivocally, there's a judgment to come and that not everyone will enjoy the future God has prepared for those who love him. There's a set of people called the righteous, and if you think that's just sort of like good people who have sort of Christian values, then you don't know God. The set of people called the righteous are those people who may have been wicked. I mean, Jesus hung out with tax collectors and sinners, all the wrong sort. But their attraction to Jesus drew them into his healing power and indeed his salvation. The whole purpose of Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection is that there are many who are made righteous, ransomed in his sight. And that set, those in Christ, those who recognize the pearl of great price, the treasure hidden in the field, they receive the kingdom of God. And those who don't, Jesus said, the blazing furnace, that's his words, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think people reject the notion of hell for three reasons, at least three reasons. You'll have your own if you reject the notion of hell, and there'll be plenty, I presume, there'll be many, perhaps many of you who do that. Hear me on this. Three reasons why people reject the notion of hell. One, you've got a prior decision, a priori, before you've even begun, you're going to reject such news, and it plays as a trump card for you. 
So you come to church and you hear about grace, ace. You hear about forgiveness as your king. You hear about hope as your queen. You see, no matter how many royal cards I place down in front of you, pearl of great price, treasure hidden in the field, something you want every, everything to get. As soon as hell is mentioned, you play a little trump card. You say, well, I'm, well, I'm out of here. I, I mean, they were hell, I, they were, he was hellfire and brimstone. I'm out the door. And there'll be emotional reasons for that. We wonder about people we love, and I certainly do. I trust a righteous God, and that leads me to my second reason we reject the notion of hell is because in our minds, partly through media and other sources, we detach the idea of this furnace, this hell, from a just judgment of a good God. And so we say it's an unjust judgment of a bad God, and so we, we do what Albanese does. We just say, oh, well, it can't be true. In your minds, you uh, consider a torture chamber of a, a capricious God, and, you know, who wants that? The third reason people reject the notion of hell is that they have images in their mind that are burned, perhaps throughout your history, or either governed by medieval art, and I'm thinking of Dante's Divine Inferno. I studied a whole course at that at university, and at the end of it, you're like, you know what, on the third circle of hell, there's some archbishop being eaten, and I'm like, you know, just like, I'm not buying that, is what you might say to yourself. Or cartoon images, you know, pitchforks, etc. Um, I'm thinking of Gary Larson and others, and I, I say that for, for us, for you, Generation X and boomers out there. Maybe you know Gary Larson. And so what you do is, at best, you write off the whole concept as a joke. At worst, a controlling fear tactics. But Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else. That's just worth saying. He did. The good guy. But he used images that people knew in the time, not the Dante's Divine Inferno or uh, Gary Larson. The two places that Jesus goes to to say to people in his day, this is what it's like, is the exile to Babylon, which we looked at through the book of Daniel. He says, that's what it's like when the city got sacked. That's what it's like. And the second uh, image he used to help people to understand it is a garbage tip, actually, outside Jerusalem called Gehenna. That's, that's the word that Jesus uses that's translated hell in, in our Bibles. But it's actually a garbage tip. You can go to it now. You can catch a plane into Tel Aviv and down into Jerusalem and Ken is a, um, a grassy area where people in Jerusalem take their kids to play. You know, you can actually, has anybody been to Gehenna? Yeah, you've been there? Okay, I'd love to go one time. Back in Jesus' day, it was a garbage dump, but Jesus is saying, you want to know about a future reality of God's judgment? It's a little like that. That was his way of doing it. And Jesus basically said, if you don't want to experience the wrath of God, if you want to experience his love, his mercy, his hope, if you don't want to experience his just wrath for sin, for my sin, then believe in me. I'll take it. That's what Jesus says. That's why Jesus says the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, that's Jesus' own words. And I believe the sobering news against the black backdrop of the judgment of God, the just judgment of God, is one of the reasons why the gospel is such beautiful news, why it's a light, why it's a pearl of great price, a treasure hidden in a field, something you'd sell everything to go and get, because in the end, it is, a, it is about God's grace to sinners like me. I could not be more thankful. I could not be more confident. 
a mentor of mine used to say, uh, when I think of hell, I think of the RTA. Do you remember the RTA? It's now called Services New South Wales. Real RTA, real, terrible, and good news, avoidable through the blood of Jesus Christ. I say, stir up the wills of thy faithful people. Dislodge me from my uh, pride towards God. Lastly and finally, it's new news. Isaiah said, uh, Isaiah 43 verse 18, you can follow on page 7, right at the bottom there. God says, forget the former things. Um, Don't dwell on the past. He's talking about Israel's history here. I'm doing a new thing. I've got something new coming up, says the God of heaven and earth. Now it springs up. Um, Do you not perceive it? Can't you see it in the air, in the promises? Jesus says, do you perceive... Same, same idea. Have you not understood these things? Do you not perceive it? Jesus asked, verse 51. And they said, yes. They replied. They had much more to learn, by the way. And Jesus said to them, therefore, every teacher of the law, the Torah, who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven, it's worth just saying here, a teacher of the law is a good person, generally, uh, who taught theology. And Jesus says those people need to become disciples in the kingdom of God. They need to follow Jesus. So just because you're good or because you teach theology doesn't make you a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. You've got to actually become one, says Jesus. And I know people in that circumstance. An old mentor of mine at at an old church uh, that Emma knows well uh, went to Bible college in the UK to become a priest in the Anglican church. And halfway through his training to become a priest, he became a follower of Jesus Christ went to his principal and said, I don't think I was Christian yesterday, and I'm Christian today. You get that? You know, it's possible. The guy was training, was accepted to be a minister, became a Christian. Uh, when I was living in New York City, there was, I was living on the Lower East Side, and there was a, a minister there in a very hoity-toity Episcopal church, and uh, he went away on a weekend away, a men's weekend away, and uh, became Christian, met Christ, the risen Christ on that weekend away, and came back and told the Bishop of New York, um, I think I'm a Christian. I've been a rector of this church for 25 years. I think I've become a Christian. And the Bishop sort of didn't know what to do with this. So he said, oh, there's a guy from Sydney, um, an Anakin from Sydney. You should go and see him. He, he talks about this sort of thing all the time. And he went and made that connection. And that's part of the reason why I ended up in New York City. Every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of the storeroom new treasures, treasures, as well as old, not just old treasures, and not just new treasures. Every teacher of the law uh, is Old Testament religious leaders who believed and spoke about the promises of God. When they become a disciple of Jesus Christ, they speak about the old covenant, uh, as well as the new gospel of Jesus Christ. We talk about Genesis, we talk about Abraham, we talk about Uh, Moses. We talk about David, we talk about the exile, but we mostly talk about something new, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why in the book of Revelation you have these words, he who is seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Do you believe it? Jesus said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. There's something new going on in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The apostle Paul could put his finger on it when he said, if anyone is in Christ, you're a disciple. The new has come. New creation's here. God's shone a light in your heart. 
The old is gone, the new is here. So what do we do with that? Um, well, we pray, stir up my will, <laughs> dislodge me from my um, laziness, my pride, my eyes that want to see things a certain way. That's the first thing we do. And then as a community of Christ, we get it out. We get this news out. We tell it. We tell it according to our giftings and in community. That's why in Isaiah 43, you've got this lovely, you are my witnesses frame. You know, Isaiah 43 verse 11, I, even I am the Lord, and apart from me there's no saviour. I have revealed, I have saved, and I have proclaimed, I am not some foreign God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord that I am God. Jesus picked up this very phrase, risen from the dead. He says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, right? To no president or prime minister, no despot or dictator, no boss, no priest, no bishop. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, risen from the dead. Therefore, said Jesus, go and make disciples of all nations. Help them to become followers of Jesus baptizing them, immersing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. We need to have a deeper discipleship, sisters and brothers. Stir up my will, you see, and surely I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen.